So I am Pastor Bob. For those of you who don't know who I am, I normally have a guitar and I preach sermons around three to five minutes long in the key of D. So this is a little bit uncommon ground for me. And this is a special day for me personally because today is my first Sunday morning sermon in this room. So we're stepping out. We're branching out. We're making history this morning, peeps. Thank you so much for being here. My first sermon, I was 16 years old, half a lifetime ago, standing right here on a Wednesday night, except we had blue carpet and orange pews. And it only took 16 years, half a lifetime, to regain their trust, <laughs> to allow me to stand up here and speak to you again. It's because I brought a live goat into the sanctuary. I'm not kidding. I saw Pastor Ken do it, and I thought, hey, if I want to be a great speaker, I need a goat. <laughs> so the only way that I know how to speak to y'all in this room, on this stage, is if I have a goat. Candace, bring in the goat. Come on, give it up. <laughs> Guys, I don't have a goat. It's an alpaca. Come on, Candace, bring it in. Some of y'all were like, alpaca? Don't those things spit? I saw, I saw Kim grab her purse. She's like, I ain't getting spit on. I also think it's hilarious that not a one of y'all questioned as soon as I said the name Candace. So if anybody has access to a goat or an alpaca, it's Candace. I can tell you that much. I want to thank my pastors for this opportunity to stand here today and share a message with you guys. I'm grateful that we have senior pastors that give opportunities and create an environment for us as leaders to expand and grow and stretch ourselves. That's what good leaders do. It takes a lot for someone uh, to step back and allow their protégés to step in, and I hope to honor you guys this morning with the time that I'm given. Well, we are in week three of Remodel. Week three. How are y'all enjoying this series so far? <laughs> Haven't the other pastors been killing it? Yeah? Pastor Amanda's kicked us off uh, with, with a message about hearing the voice of God. I love hearing Pastor Amanda speak. She has an incredible way of delivering a message with the heart of a teacher, and she's a fantastic communicator. Pastor Casey brought it last week with a message about listening and waiting. It's one thing to be able to hear and identify the voice of God, but it is as any married couple or parent in this room can attest, it's a completely different story to listen. Pastor Casey is a different breed. He is a lifelong friend of mine, and, and whether you hear him speak from a platform or in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, it won't take you long to figure out you are speaking to a wise man, a deep thinker. His brain processes things in a way that mine would never even think to go. So today, I want to focus on the next step, and that is doing. So we have hearing and identifying, listening and waiting, and doing. So let's do it. Let's get our hands dirty this morning. You'll find today that I am unlike either of the pastors that spoke before me. My approach and delivery will be totally different. Well, Bob, why are you making a point to highlight the, the differences in the pastors. Well, hang on to that. 
I'm going somewhere with it. And as PK would say, don't jump ahead of me. Wait for it. See that? He's plugged. I'm shameless. Okay. Let's get into this. Let's get remodeled. Let's get that definition up there, please. To change the structure or form of something, to shape again or differently. So it's not just a restoration in the sense of restoring something to its former glory, but it's changing the structure. And that could be adding walls, tearing down walls, changing the floor plan. When you hear the word remodel, what are some things that come to mind? Naturally, I would think of a house remodel uh, or, or an updating of a business, whether it be the physical attributes of the building or like a rebranding of sorts. We all have this desire to some extent of owning our dream home. Ladies, how many of y'all have a Pinterest board titled Things My Husband Can't Build For Me on it? <laughs> right? There we go. Going through, they're like, oh, this is cute. Pin that. This will look good in my dining room. Let's pin it. Let's go. I've been in quite a few remodeling projects in my life, okay? I'm great at demo. I'm really good at it. It's my favorite. Give me a sledgehammer. You won't have a house in 45 minutes. I guarantee it. In fact, you give me a sledgehammer, this is what you get. Let's pull that up. Right there. That's what you get. You're welcome. Who wouldn't want that? Let's go to that next picture, please. Because that's a chimney. As a teenager, Kevin Human hired me to tear out some chimneys in some rental houses that he had, brought, he had bought. He goes to pick up lunch, comes back, the chimney's sitting out in the front yard. I found my purpose. I got inspired. So inspired that one night I'm laying in bed and this thought hits me. I need a gazebo in my room. Guys, I lived in a single wide trailer and I need a gazebo in my room. So I stayed up all night drawing out plans and as soon as the sun came up, I got straight to work. We had some old wood laying around. Around 5.30, 6 a.m. in a trailer park, I'm outside sawing wood and hammering. I'm getting to it. My neighbors love me. I was their favorite. My gazebo was poorly built. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was proud of it. And I showed everyone who came into my house. My mom was mortified. She was so embarrassed. I worked more on, uh, with Kevin on some projects here and there, and I got even more inspired. I'm going to remodel my bathroom. My mom comes out of her room one day, and I have everything tore out. I've got carpet, toilet, shower, the works, all of it sitting in the living room, right? I actually did a pretty good job this, this time. The bathroom was nice. So what do we think of when we think of remodel? HGTV comes to mind. Shows like uh, Fixer Upper, Property Brothers, Flipper Flop, Extreme Home Makeover. I'm not allowed to watch HGTV TV in my house. I'm not even kidding. My wife has blacklisted the channel because I'm the type of person that after 20 minutes of watching one of these shows, my wife comes home and I have two walls knocked out and I'm building a pergola off my front porch. Because I see it, and I convince myself that I need a pergola. 
It doesn't even serve a purpose. It doesn't provide shade. It provides zero protection from the elements, but I need it. Man, you know how you watch an action movie and you find yourself just walking a little bit taller, puffing out your chest, you know what I'm saying? Ready to just beat down the first person who looks at you wrong, you know? Step! That's me with HGTV. I can build it. <laughs> Give me a hammer. I'm not allowed to go to Lowe's anymore without adult supervision. I'm not even kidding. I'll come home with tools I didn't know existed before I walked in there. And Kelsey's like, Bob, I sent you there for light bulbs. We don't need new toilets. And why is that delivery truck dropping off a tractor in my front yard? It's because I have a problem. I wear a lot of different hats, both literally and metaphorically. See, I'm not faced with something that I don't know how to do and respond with the words, I don't know, so I can't. When I'm faced with something that I've never done before, my brain goes into let's figure this out mode. And I'm wired differently. And, it, and take that for what it is because it could be a good thing or a very bad thing in any given situation. Guys, there are two types of people in this world. There are people who see things for what they are. And there are people who see things for what they can be. I can honestly say that I am the latter. Most creative-minded people are, but I wasn't always that way. I had a humble upbringing. We didn't have a lot of money. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad spent most of the year out of state working and sent home to, to pay bills. Times were tough. We didn't always have food. We didn't always have electricity or running water. I lived in a single-wide trailer in a couple different trailer parks. I wore hand-me-downs from friends. My friends were a lot skinnier than me and females, so it was quite hilarious seeing me walk around in tube tops and booty shorts. I believe we have a picture of that too. Can we pull that out? There you go. Yes, sir. You're welcome. I'll get that off of there. I don't want y'all getting distracted. Leo, Leo. My eyes are up here, buddy. Let's keep it Christian. But this is all I knew. I envisioned myself probably getting into asphalt work like my dad, renting a house one day, having a big family living paycheck to paycheck. I, I don't know. All I could see, what was right in front of me. It was until people came into my life and showed me that I can do anything that I set my mind to, that that mindset began to change. They looked at me and saw what I could be and not what I was. And can I tell you, if you're not the type of person they can see things for what they can be. You need to find someone who can and spend as much time as you can with that person. I had people in this church who only spoke life into me, even as a child. Pastors Ken and Connie, Kevin and Renee, Kim Moffitt, Jeff and Wendy Daggett, Pastors Kelly and Denise, and many, many, many more. I had so many inv people investing in me and telling me what my life could be that eventually I began to see it for myself. I specifically remember a conversation that I had with Pastor Kelly as he was taking me home one day in his green truck and him saying the words, you are bigger than Decatur, Tennessee. You are bigger than the life that you have been, have been given. And that for me was a turning point. At 13, 14 years old in PK's green truck, I made a decision that I was going to see things differently.
And let me clarify, too, when he said you're bigger than Decatur, Tennessee, he was not speaking about the literal town. The town is a great place, and it shaped many of my formidable years. But what he was referring to was the negative connotation that comes with that. Because for me, Decatur was home. And home for me involved poverty, drug abuse, other types of abuse. It's the cousins that I lost to drugs and alcohol. The aunts and the uncles still dealing with the same problems for years and years and years. He was saying, you're bigger than all these things. We need people in our lives who can see things for what they can be and not for what they are. In late 2015, my soon-to-be wife Kelsey and I began a search to buy a home. I wanted to fix her upper. And let me tell you, it was a God thing because my wife and I could not be more opposite. She sees a pile of trash as a pile of trash. I see it as art and something that I want to hang on my bedroom wall. We could not be more opposite. But I want to give a special shout out to the people who began to open her eyes and show her that she too can see things differently. Let's pull that up. Chip and Joanna Gaines from Fixer Upper. The work they are doing at Magnolia Farm is just astounding. Thank you, Joanna, for standing in the middle of a room, pointing your finger and giving orders while Chip does the back-breaking labor. You inspired my wife, Joanna, that she too can stand in the middle of a room, point her fingers and give orders while I do the back-breaking labor. Thank you, Joanna. Thanks. Kels told me one day I want to fix her up, and I, I about lost it. I knew specifically what I wanted in a home, and there was no house around here that you can find with a pre-built recording studio, so I knew that there was going to be some work going into it. We looked at house after house after house, and nothing really just spoke to us. Nothing really just jumped out as a clear winner. We saw one house that was definitely an amazing price, and, and we'd be able to sink more money into it, but it had, it had uh, foundation problems. And even I know my limits. One day we get a call from the realtor to come check out this home. We show up for a walkthrough, and my mind is buzzing. This place looked like something completely out of the 70s. It had green shag carpet, Bright purple walls. One bathroom had all blue everything. Blue toilet, blue shower, blue sink. Unfinished areas downstairs. Outdated everything. And I'm not kidding when I tell you this. The thing that sold me on the house was the light switches in the downstairs hallway. They had zoo animals carved into the cover. I turned to my wife and we knew this was it. This was it. It was absolutely perfect. Not as it was, though. As it was, it was a freaking dumpster fire. <laughs> but it was perfect for what it could be because it had good bones. It was owned by an elderly lady. And we knew that before as if we officially knew that was the case. Because I pulled off 146 shelves off of the walls of my house. And no house ever needs that many shelves. It's unnecessary. <laughs> And I know, because I lived in the South my whole life, that, and because I had a grandma, that at one time, all those shelves held up knickknacks. And if you don't know what a knickknack is, you didn't have a grandma. 
<laughs> Grandmas love their knickknacks. So we put in an offer, we closed, and bam. Now I have the biggest remodeling project I've ever been a part of. And I learned a lot during this process, during this time. And I've compiled a list of, uh, to help out anyone that is going through that remodeling process. So here it is. Pastor Bob's Declassified Survival Guide to Remodeling. Number one, it will cost you. Not just financially, but it costs energy and time. You got to count the cost before you go into it. Jesus said this in Luke uh, 14, 28. He said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and was not able to finish. We signed the papers on January 8th, 2016, and Kramer, the other guitar player, and I, we moved in the very same day. I got to work that very same day, and that work didn't end for three months. Every day, 16 to 20 hour days, sometimes all-nighters, I worked constantly to make the changes that I could see in my head. See, we had a deadline of three months with our construction loan, so I knew going into it that it was going to be a lot of work and a very little time. Because we tore out walls, we built new walls, we restructured the layout plans, we completely overhauled the bathrooms and kitchen, stripped them down to the subfloor and started new, redid electrical, redid plumbing, new doors, new insulation. I mean, it was insane, the amount of work that went into it. And for me, as the person doing the majority of the work, it wasn't the money that took its toll on me. It was the time and the energy. I was exhausted and proud of the work that had been done. And I tell everyone, I'm glad I did it, but I'll never do it again. Never do it again. When you go through a personal remodel, you have to count the costs. Understand that it's going to take energy and time. It's going to involve effort to do the work necessary. It takes work. Number two, it's a process. It didn't happen overnight. It was, some, it was something that I woke up every day knowing that there was work to be done. Some days I got more things accomplished than others, but nonetheless, I was constantly working towards the end goal. Change doesn't happen overnight. It takes a while. A lot of patience and keeping focus on the end goal was what kept me sane. And when you make the decision to do any type of work, especially on yourself, it's a process. You got you to gotta remember that, guys. Number three, morale will waver. Day one. My feet were running before they hit the ground. The sheer excitement of getting my hands dirty and seeing the process unfold was exhilarating. About a month and a half into the project, I was done. The house wasn't done, but I was done. I was sick of breathing drywall dust, sick of hurting, sick of the mess. It, it felt like I'd bit off more than I could chew at times. At times, I wanted to punch through the wall that I just put up. But I also knew that no matter how I was feeling at the time, that it wouldn't be completed until I completed it. So I kept my head down and I continued to work. You know why? Because I didn't want to settle for what I wanted in that moment of frustration and exhaustion, a break. I didn't want to settle for that. To me, having a finished home for my family was more important. And some of y'all this morning, some of y'all have settled for what you want right now instead of seeing it through and having what you always dreamt of. When you start the process, you too will be fueled by adrenaline and excitement. And these times are great, but there are always valleys, 
always. Don't get discouraged when you make mistakes. Instead, learn from them and keep moving forward. Don't settle. This next one, God, this is hard for me. Forget perfection, strive for excellence. This is still to this day something that I have to remind myself. I am a perfectionist, and it's a bad thing. Well, Bob, I'm a perfectionist, and it's not a bad thing. It's a very good thing. I'm driven. That's what you sound like. No, <laughs> it's a bad thing. We had three months to get everything finished before the appraiser came. I, and I quickly had to realize that not everything was going to be perfect. Because when I focus on making something perfect, I spend way more time on it than I should. And I'm always disappointed with the end result because guess what? It's still not perfect. I did it. I would have never met the deadline had I not figured this out when I did. I had three short months. Life is short. Stop trying to be perfect and hating yourself when you fall short. When we set such high expectations for ourselves that are just impossible to obtain, we end up feeling worse about ourselves because we are constantly missing the mark, guys. Make mistakes. You're going to. Learn from them and move on. Try not to do it again. God does not call us to be perfect, he, but he does call us to strive for excellence. Bill Johnson in his book, The Way of Life, says, Perfectionism is religion, while excellence is kingdom. Excellence is doing and becoming our best in any situation or task. Key word there, becoming. And right now, your best is not the best that it's ever going to be. Do everything with excellence, and your excellence will become better. My best right now looks a whole lot different than my best a year ago. And I can't wait to see what my best looks like a year from now. Because as we grow, our best gets better. Three months pass, and the appraiser comes back to the house, and he pulls up in my yard, and he takes some pics, of the, of the outside, and he leaves. He didn't even pull in my driveway. I'm standing inside. Like, I don't know why I was wearing a tie, but I was wearing a tie. I was, like, really excited about it. I'm like, all right, let's go. But I didn't want to let you know, like, I'm kind of, like, peeking out, but I didn't want him to know that I was peeking out. I knew he was there. I'm waiting on him. We get the papers back stating that the value of the house had not changed. I was so discouraged. See, up until this point, all the work that was done was on the inside. We had not even touched the outside. We dumped $35,000 into this house, and homeboy is barely going to step out of his car and tell me that my house's worth has not gone up in value. You got me messed up. I'm mad. He never even set foot inside. And this is for somebody. Let's put that up there. Don't allow anyone to appraise you from a distance. Don't let anyone speak into your life and tell you your value when they have never taken the time to step inside and see all the work that was done. If you haven't, stepped, if you haven't spent time with me and seen the work that has been done, if, if you weren't there for the sleepless nights, if you weren't a part of the restoration and have not invested any time into making it what it is today, if you haven't stepped foot inside but you feel comfortable determining the value of someone from a distance, then you have no business, no right, no authority whatsoever to speak into me and tell me what I'm worth. 
going somewhere. All he was looking for was curb appeal. What did it look like on the outside? He had no idea what it looked like on the inside. And that goes both ways. Because you might see someone or something that looks great on the outside, but it's all kind of janky on the inside. You cannot accurately determine the worth of someone without looking inside. God tells me my worth because he created me. And when he created me, he created me with good bones. My house is not at all what the original creator intended it to be at the time that it was created. But it was, in, it was created in such a way that made it possible to add rooms, take away rooms, restructure, because it had good bones. God has given us a call to action, guys. What we choose to do with that can alter our very world as we know it. He has given us an opportunity. And here's the thing about opportunities, though. Let's bring it up. Opportunity will always be opportunity until you make it a reality. Always. Just like with my house, there was work to be done and in order for it to be changed. And, and had I not done the work, it would still look the same. No one else is going to do the work for you. God works in us, but I believe he expects us to get to work too, guys. So that's my first main point this morning. Let's get to work. Let's get to work. Pastor Kelly and I were talking this week, and he showed me this meme. It goes, it goes along exactly with what I'm talking about. Let's pull it up. It says, God is in control, but he doesn't expect you to lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. Prayer's vital, guys, but we got to put in the work too. In the book of Ezra, we learn that Cyrus, the king of Persia, decides to give back the rights of Jerusalem to the Jews that were exiled by King Nebuchadnezzar some 100 years earlier. See, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was known for his mighty armies and the destruction of cities, he swept through and he destroyed the temple of God in Jerusalem and stole all the values in, uh, valuables inside. He took everything from them. And when Cyrus came, became king, Cyrus became king, he ordered his servants to go to the Babylonian vaults and retrieve all that King Nebuchadnezzar had took from the temple. Here's a list of it. Let's pull that up. 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes. 29 silver pans, 30 gold bowls, 410 duplicate silver bowls, 1,000 miscellaneous items. Let's go to the next one. All told, there were 5,400 gold and silver articles that Sheshbazar took with them when he brought the exiles back from, from Babylon to Jerusalem. He brought back all the remaining exiles so that they may rebuild their homes and have Jerusalem back so that they could rebuild the temple of God. The numbers of the returning Israelites by families of origin were as follows. And we're not going to read these, but I want, you to, I want you to see them. Let's go to the next one. Go to the next one. Come on. Keep it coming. 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 Come on. Let's stop right there. The total count for the congregation was 42,360. That did not include the male and female slaves, which, uh, which numbered 703. 7,337. There were also 200 male and female singers, and they had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Well, Pastor Bob, couldn't you just say there were 42,000 plus people came back? You couldn't have just led with that? Instead of making us look at 15 slides of names we can't pronounce? 
Because the author found it important to, sp to specifically list them in detail. So that tells me that they were people. And they were families. And they were not just numbers. They were valuable. Also, why are the singers mentioned dead last for the livestock? I'm offended. <laughs> but also, I work with singers. And they are divas. So I'd put them in the back too. <laughs> Jeshua and Zerubbabel are, two, are the two people in this book that you barely read any dialect from. All it says about them is they got to work building. They weren't out talking the talk. They just simply began walking the walk. The Israelites settled in and began work on the temple. And work is going great. They are, for lack of better words, getting stuff done. You should have seen her face. You should have seen her. She's like, usually I'm just worried about my husband cussing on stage. Huh? This is stressful. <laughs> One day, a few old enemies of Judah and Benjamin come up to the, in the, to the Israelites, and they offer to help. We want to help. We're Christians and stuff. And we totally make burnt sacrifices to God and stuff. Sound familiar? I go to church every Sunday. Well, so does my car, but that doesn't mean it's going to heaven. <laughs> I pray over my food. I'm a Christian. I always forward those chain messages on Facebook that say, if you love Jesus, you'll share this with 100 friends, so I'm a Christian. <laughs> Guys, be careful who you let into your inner circle. There are people who, who say they want to help, but really want to make your job harder. But they ain't fooling our boys, Jeshua and Zerubbabel. This is the first time you hear them speak. They say, thanks, but no thanks. This temple means more to us than it does to you. We were commanded to do it, so we'll finish it on our own. Listen, these jerks harassed the Jews for 15 years throughout the lifetime of Cyrus and into the reign of King Darius. They slandered them. They harassed them while they worked, and they even hired propagandists to tear down their efforts. They wrote letters to other kings, Xerxes and Artaxerxes, to get them shut down, and it finally worked. These Jews are evil. They aren't going to pay taxes, and you'll have no control of them. Artaxerxes is like, well, we can't have that. Not today. And you can bet that. Shut them down. So he does. And they stayed shut down until the second year of King Darius's reign. But I love how this is written because it's so blunt. Haggai and Zechariah were still preaching. And the Bible says, Joshua and Zerubbabel just got back to work. What happened? What changed? They were forced into a time of waiting, so they waited. And when it was time to get back to work, they just got back to work. They didn't wait any longer than they had to. They waited when they were supposed to wait, and they worked when it was time to work. Enter Governor Tatane, the Karen of the trans-Euphrates. He sees that they have resumed work. What are they doing? Who are these people? Who gave them authority to do this? I want their names and badge numbers. Tatne was such a Karen. I demand to speak to your manager. I'm sure that's what he sounded like. I'm just... <laughs> the managers, Jeshua and Zerubbabel, calmly explained the situation that King Cyrus said they could rebuild. Ezra 5.5 5 says this. It says, but the eye of their God 
was watching over the elders of the Jews. And they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his, and his written reply be received. How many here ever worked in restaurant or customer service? You ever dealt with a Karen? Oh, this Karen wasn't done. Not you, Karen. You're so sweet. I'm so sorry. I didn't even think about that. There's, it's a different kind of Karen. But this Karen was not done. And he was going to talk to the manager of all managers, King Darius. Tatnay writes a letter to Darius, the now king. And this is my paraphrasing of the letter. Uh, but here's the gist of how it went down. Oh, King Darius. Cordial greetings. It's me, Governor Tattletale, official Karen of the Trans-Euphrates. These Jews are building over here, and they said that King Cyrus told them they could. Well, I find that hard to believe, since he is dead, and they are not supposed to be doing this. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did, in fact, issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send his decision on this matter. King Darius does. He does an extensive search, and lo and behold, a scroll is found. Here is Darius's letter back to Tatanay, the Karen of the Trans-Euphrates. The first part was a memorandum from King Cyrus stating that, in fact, the Jews had every right to be doing what they were doing. And he goes on to say this. And this is actually from the Bible. This is not my translation. Now listen. Tatanay, governor of the land beyond the Euphrates, SB associates, and all officials of the land. I'm not even going to try to say it. Stay out of their way. Leave the governor and the leaders of the Jews alone so they can work and rebuild. Uh, yeah, they can work on that temple of God as they rebuild it. I hereby give official orders on how you are going to help the leaders of the Jews in the rebuilding of the temple of God. I imagine Darius is a clapper. And here's how you're going to do it. <laughs> their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of the trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Hold up! Karen is the governor of the trans-Euphrates. So in other words, not only are you going to leave him alone, but you're going to pay for it. Whatever is needed. Young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine, olive oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given to them daily without fail. This is ridiculous. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. For this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. Now, another version of that says their house will be made into a manure pit. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. I'm pretty sure he dabbed. I, I would have dabbed. I'm sitting here reading this like, yes! You go, Darius! How you like that, Karen? That's me. I'm like so excited. And listen, you know he wasn't the one actually writing this letter. He's walking around saying all this stuff, clapping and dabbing. He's got one of his scribes over here writing everything down. It's like impaled by a two by four. Manure pit. Got it. Okay. I, Darius, 
have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Guys, diligence is required. When you decide to remodel, restructure your life, there will always be naysayers. There will always be people in your life trying to tear you down. But I'm here to tell you that the eye of God is watching over you always, and God always comes through. Opposition will come, and when it does, you have to remain diligent. Just keep your mouth shut, keep your head down, and let God be God. For some of y'all, that means staying off social media. It is, a, it is human nature to want to take matters into your own hands. Be diligent in your work. In their diligence, the Jews finished the temple. In the next book, Nehemiah is met with the news that the temple was rebuilt. But the walls of Jerusalem were still in bad shape. The Bible says that when Nehemiah heard this, he wept and mourned for days. Over what? Some walls? Bruh, the Jews got their cities back. They got the temple back, and your boy Nehemiah is over here crying over some walls? What do the walls have to do with the Holy of Holies? It's because Nehemiah understood that even though the religious or the spiritual work had been done, the walls around the city, the secular or the practical work was not done. Therefore, the whole project was not done. Secular? Secular's bad. No, it's not. It just means it has no religious ties or significance. So by definition, clothes are secular. Aren't you thankful we're not all in here naked? My car is secular. Doesn't make it evil. When you sit down and pray over your food, it doesn't make it religious food. It's just food that you probably bought from a secular Walmart with your secular money that you got from your secular job and drove home in your secular car, listening to one of J-103, of course, of course, and cooked on your secular stove, all to stuff your secular face. <laughs> I added that last part in there. I just really want to... Your sons or daughters 4-H fair is a secular event. It doesn't mean they're sacrificing ghosts to Satan. Well, God has no use for secular things. Bet. He used a slingshot to bring down a giant. He used a boat to save all humanity and animals. He used a bush to talk some sense into Moses. He used a stick to part a sea. He used a packed lunch to feed thousands. And he used a tree to save you. My God can use anything or anyone to better the kingdom. Some of y'all shut me out as soon as I mention that word. And for some of y'all, it wouldn't matter if Jesus himself said it. You'd let it go in one ear and out the other. Stuck in your ways. Stuck in traditionalism. Ain't changing my mind. Sounds like somebody might need a remodel. Oh, snap. Maybe update the drapes, honey. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. You see, the word secular is sinful. God sees a tool. It just depends on whose hand the tool is in. The slingshot was just a slingshot until God put it in the hands of David. A dollar is secular whether it's been donated to charity or it's resting on a stripper's panty line. It just depends on who put it there. I just said panty line on stage. That just happened. God sees tools. What makes this song secular? It depends on who put it out. What's the intent behind the message? Our summer concert series is coming up. 
And we have gotten so much flack for playing a secular song each week. Centuries, the Easter drama is loaded with secular songs. And we see no less than 50 souls saved each time we put it on. So for every hateful comment that we receive, heaven has received another lost soul. All because we decided not to try to put God in a box and tell him what tools we think he should use. And I will take that any day. God can use anything. See, walls are exactly that. They're walls. They could still use the temple and live in the homes without the walls around the city. They held no spiritual significance, but the walls helped to protect everything valuable within the city. That was the role they provided. Not only were they used to keep the bad out, but they kept the good in. Are you following me this morning? They protected all of the items that Cyrus gave back. They protected all of the people working within the temple. All 42,000 plus that the author found it so important to mention by name and dedicate an entire chapter to, that's what they did. Nehemiah understood how the spiritual and the secular can work hand in hand. Well, Pastor Bob, I can't be used. I'm not a good speaker. I can't preach. I can't sing. I can't play an instrument. I don't feel comfortable praying out loud. I'm content with just coming to church and just listening to someone else do it. Just because you are not a pastor does not mean that God doesn't want to use you. I find it interesting that the the reason why the temple was rebuilt was not because of the priest, but because of Yeshua and Zerubbabel, two guys whose actions spoke louder than any words. Heck, in the book of Ezra, Ezra doesn't even show up until chapter 7. 50 years after the temple. Homeboy's late to his own book. There's only 10 chapters in Ezra. Should have been called Joshua and Zerubbabel. Do awesome stuff because they're cool. God doesn't want or need us to be all be pastors. He just wants someone willing to put your head down and get to work. Pastor Kelly said it a few weeks ago. I only have this or I only can do this. Perfect because that's all God needs is your only. He can do so much more with your only. Stop waiting for a divine intervention or for an angel of God to show up and tell you what it is you need to do. God has already equipped you with everything you need to get stuff done. Love God, love people, serve others. Do that. And do it the way you know how. That's kingdom. We have to see things for what they can be. Do the work and do it diligently. And I believe God is calling us to expand. What does that mean? Let's pull that up. That's your third point. Expand. It could mean learning new skills. Stepping out of your comfort zone. Doing something different. Maybe it's tearing down a wall for a more open concept. Tearing down walls and letting people in. Maybe it's putting walls up. Some people have access to areas in your life that have no business being there. God created us with good bones. Therefore, he created us in such a way that we too can be remodeled. Let's wrap this up. I want to look at the parable of the talents. I feel like this parable really just sums up everything for me. Everything that we've discussed today. We've all heard the story. Master gives five talents to one servant, two talents to another, and one talent to another. Now, a talent is a unit of measurement used to determine the weight of gold or silver. Kind of like in the UK, it's like pounds or quid. As a child, I thought of this as what my definition of an Italian is. I didn't know that he was actually talking about money. I thought he was literally talking about 
talents, gifts, abilities. He comes back and he finds the five-talent guy now has ten. And the two-talent guy now has four. But the one-talent guy had buried his and still only has one. The master praises the two that doubled theirs and takes away the talent from the servant that only had one. Now, this was not a competition to see who could have the most talents by the end of it. In fact, the servant with the four talents received the same amount of praise as the one with the ten. The master was pleased because they used what they had and they made something out of it. A couple of things were made very clear to me when reading this parable. Thomas Jefferson was famously quoted saying, all men are created equal. However, my takeaway from this parable is we are not all created with equal skills, abilities, and opportunities. The narrative says each man was given talents according to his own ability. The master understood that the one-talent servant was not capable of producing as much as the five-talent servant. Initially, we may read that and say, that doesn't seem fair. But we know that diversity is woven into the tapestry of this world. We are all different in many ways. Not to say that we shouldn't treat everyone humanely with respect and dignity. But for example, we're not all created as athletically inclined as the pros. Therefore, we can't all be superstar athletes. Again, it's not a bad thing. It's just a reality. I don't speak like Pastor Amanda or Pastor Casey or PK or Pastor Ben. We are all so vastly different in our approach, in our studies, in our presentations. But that is exactly what God celebrates. Remember how I said I was going somewhere with that? It's called coming full circle, folks. Stay tuned. Y'all might learn something. God celebrates diversity. Well, I can't do it like so-and-so. Good. Do it like you. Do you, boo-boo. Turn to your neighbor and say, do you, boo-boo. Turn to your neighbor. That was another misunderstanding that I had as a child. Turn to your neighbor. Because my actual next-door neighbor went to church here. So when Pastor Ken would say, turn to your neighbor, I was like, do I tell the person next to me or do I need to get up and go over there and tell him? I'm confused. Number two, success only occurs when we take action. Adam and Eve were put in the garden to work it and take care of it. Paul told the church in Thessalonica that if someone did not work, they should not eat. Proverbs 12, 11 says, tell us that, or tells us that those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. A farmer has to work the land to get the crops. The man receiving only one talent did not work, and as a result, he earned nothing in return. Out of fear, he kept his talent buried. The passage says, and thus guaranteeing that it would not be lost, or in other words, that he would not fail. Instead, the master took it away because he was too afraid to use it. It's our job to be faithful with all that God has given us. Biblical success is working diligently in the here and now, using all the talents that God has given to produce the return expected by God. Number three, God always gives us everything we need to do what he has called us to do. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Philippians 4.13, the master in this parable, he, he expected his servants to do more than passively preserve what had been entrusted to them. 
God expects us to generate a return by using our skills and abilities towards a productive end. The servant with the, the, with the five talents had everything necessary to produce five more. The servant with the two talents had everything necessary to produce two more. The servant with the one talent had everything necessary to produce one more. But out of fear, he chose to do nothing. Fear triumphs faith if we let it. Fear triumphs mission if we let it. Fear makes cowards of us all if we listen to the message more than God's words. And lastly, we will be held accountable. The unfaithful servant in this parable did not waste the master's money. He wasted an opportunity. As a result, he was judged wicked and lazy. I'm sure we have all felt that wasted opportunity from time to time. We are responsible for what we have been given, and one day we will be held accountable. I don't know about you, but when I stand before God, I want to hear those words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Do you know what the reward was for the other two servants? More work. The reward is responsibility. Don't be afraid to fail. I think failure is vital to any kind of success. Failure can be a good thing. We can learn from failing. But when we fear failure so much that we never even try, We miss out on the opportunities that God gives us, and that's just tragic. This is not a parable about two success stories and a failure. Let me be very clear when I say this. The one-talent servant did not fail. He didn't even try, and that's worse. We recently refinished uh, painting the exterior of our house. Two weeks and 36 gallons of paint later, I find myself back at Lowe's needing more paint and having a conversation with a stranger, which is not unusual for me. I have no problem meeting people. It's just who I am. In fact, I'm the type of person that gets into an Uber, and when I, by the time I exit the car, the, the car, I'm like, thanks, Linda. I don't care what anybody says. You're a good mom, and you will get custody of your kids again. Love you, girl. Never met a stranger. I'm standing in line and there's a lady next to me and she watches me as I order more paint and she waits patiently for me to get finished and I hear her say never stops huh I said I'm sorry she said the work never stops when you're a homeowner I said tell me about it we continued to talk until she received her paint and walked away and I learned that she owned houses in South Carolina and painted a fence for a client and the client didn't want the fence so then they had to remove the fence we talked a lot But the one thing that she said, and it's my last point, the work never stops. I've heard it a thousand times, but it stuck out to me more than ever that day. It was a reminder and a revelation at the same time, because not only does the work never stop for us as Christians, but God as the owner never stops working in us. Just like the homeowner, there will never be a time When the work is completely finished, until you're finished. There will always be a wall that needs painted or or touched up or a leaky pipe needing fixed. No matter how old you are, you're not done. And he is not done with you. Some of us are major projects. 
Some of us just need an updated paint job. But either way, all of us need work because God never stops working. Thank you.